Amen, and good morning to you all. It's good to see you, and I do want to just reiterate the men's breakfast, because Mike said there'd be 100 men here, and there will only be 100 men here if 70 of you all come. So uh, make sure that you come and you bring someone from work. Just say, hey, you want to go to breakfast next Saturday? There's this nice hole in the wall in the corner of 46th and Capitola. See you then. And I'm sure they will come. It's free. So why wouldn't they come? Mark chapter 15 this morning. In the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church there in Corinth in chapter 15, he declared that the gospel was comprised of three very specific components. Let me read the verse to you. He said, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All three of those components are required for humanity to be able to receive a salvation, a forgiveness of sins. The death, we've looked at that the last couple of weeks. If you have to brush up on that, you can pick up uh, the CD or listen online. But why was it important that Jesus died? Of course, we know because it was there on the cross that he paid the price for our sins. He took our place. Literally, we saw he took Barabbas's place, a sinful man, a picture, a type of what he did in standing in our stead. Not to mention also that his death was necessary, of course, right? Number two, because if he didn't die, he couldn't have rose from the dead. That's deep, isn't it? But that's true. Number two, the burial of Jesus, also a necessary component. Now, wait until we get to the burial to talk about that, um, but that's very important. And it, to say that it's important, that it's vital to the gospel, is an understatement, and you'll see why when we get to that. And then number three, what I told you we would get to this morning is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are we allowed to teach on the resurrection in August? I think we are. We'll go ahead and do that this morning because that's where we're at in the text. Usually you just hear that around Easter time, but that's where we are in Mark right now. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the chief component that proves to us that he is the Savior. His resurrection sets him apart from every other so-called religious leader that has ever walked the face of the planet. When the angel um, met with the women who arrived at the tomb that resurrection Sunday morning, that angel not only announced Jesus' resurrection, but the angel also instructed them to tell the disciples about it as well. And Matthew's gospel tells us that the women ran to bring the news of the resurrection to the disciples. And not only that, that as they went to tell his disciples, quote, Jesus apparently, quote, met them along the way, saying to them, rejoice. They ran with great joy, and Jesus met them along the way, saying, rejoice. And the word rejoice means just that. They're in the original language in Matthew's gospel. It means to rejoice, to have joy in your heart. But it means more than that. It means a very deep, settled, calming joy, an internal sense of calm that takes place in your heart, that kind of a joy. 
And there is a joy that actually exists in the human condition that is accessible to human beings that would not otherwise be apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to take some time as we wrap up this morning to talk about exactly what I mean by that. What it is, this calming, settling joy that is accessible to us. What about the resurrection of Jesus Christ that it allows people to be here this morning and be just calm, at peace, a peace that surpasses understanding, a joy that is constant. Happiness is temporary, but joy is constant that we always have because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, on a side note, and as a way of introduction into where we left off last time, the news, I think it's interesting to note that the news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was entrusted to women before it was entrusted to men. It was the responsibility of the women to get the word out. Now that's not because God figured the women would be able to get the word out faster than the men would. Uh, don't go there, don't think that, that's not at all. God had something much more in mind, uh, much more important in uh, bringing the message forward through women as opposed to men. It was very significant to the culture of that day. For you see then at that time, uh, the society as a whole, the culture, had a very low view of women. You may know that in that day. Uh, I'll give you an example. I could give you many. But a woman in that day was not allowed to be a witness in the court of law to establish facts of evidence in a court case. Just one example of many because they were considered to a person to be untrustworthy at the time. So society then and, and still many parts of the world today have a very low view of women, a, view of women that the Bible knows nothing of, a view of women that heaven knows nothing of, that Jesus Christ knows nothing of. And so not only were the women given this commission, as we pick up from where we left off last time, remember Jesus breathed his, his last, the veil had torn, and the centurion said, surely this was the Son of God. We pick up here at the scene there of the cross, the women are the ones outside of John, None of the disciples are there. The women are the ones that are there at the cross. And I believe God honors that and is in part why he chooses here to bring forth this message through the women. I think also why he chooses to sort of mention some of them by name and why I want to make note of that uh, briefly this morning as we begin. Verse 40, it says, There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Less and of Joseph, and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And so, when it's all said and done, there's no two ways about it. The most faithful of all of Jesus' disciples, without any shadow of a doubt here, were women. And why am I harping on this point? I mean, we live in the United States of America in 2014. I mean, we're far from perfect, but we're pretty much ahead of the curve as it relates to how we treat women in this country as opposed to many other countries in the world. But the reason I bring up this point and the reason I want to mention it is because all too often I run across, maybe you do too, I run into people who think that the Bible or the God of the Bible is somehow disrespectful towards women. And anytime I hear that, I cringe 
because I know I am talking to someone who is ignorant, not just of the Bible and of God, but of history and of the conditions of the world in which we live in today. Because virtually every single country that has as its, as its heritage a Christian heritage, the, the way in which women are treated in that society is vastly different from every other society in which they do not have a Christian heritage. And that's an observable historical fact. And you can look around at the treatment of women in the world today and see that that is true. And it is Jesus Christ who changed that. It was Jesus Christ who had relationship and friendships with women. And it's Jesus Christ here who entrusts the message of the resurrection to the women even before men. Now, verse 42, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So Joseph of Arimathea, along with, we don't know at what point, but John's gospel tells us that Nicodemus was involved as well. Both members of the Sanhedrin, both very prominent, wealthy, influential within the society, but both of them were very much secret disciples of Jesus up until this point right now. And John's gospel tells us that it was their fear of the religious leaders, their fear of the Jews that kept them silent for so long. In fact, we know that Nicodemus was very much intrigued by Jesus himself way back in John chapter 3, near the very beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. So for some time now, at least Nicodemus and maybe even Joseph had been closet Christians, you might say, until now, where they boldly stepped forward to claim the body, the dead body of Jesus, to take it down off of that cross. No longer were they determined in their heart to allow anyone or the religious leaders to intimidate them about their love for Jesus. And by the way, the cross has been the cure for secret disciples now for 2,000 years. It's where a secret disciple finally gets to a point where they consider Jesus and they consider his death and what was happening to him and what had happened to him upon that cross. And then at some point, it changes your approach to absolutely everything. Sometimes it doesn't happen right away in the life of a believer. I know it didn't happen right away for me when I first became a believer, that I was uh, more outspoken in my faith that I was a secret disciple growing up in junior high and in high school and some of those things. Nicodemus, like I said, maybe it was three years before he steps forward out of fear. What emboldened Nicodemus and indeed Joseph of Arimathea to step forward here? That would be the cross. Ultimately, it's not you know, our in-depth theology. It's not your clever reasoning doctrinally that does it. It's where we get to a place where we find a point in time in our life where we say to ourselves, look, I don't care what this crazy world thinks about Jesus Christ anymore. I don't care what this world really even thinks about me and what I love about Jesus or that I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to take up my cross and I'm going to proclaim that message anyway. 
And so when Joseph of Arimathea and indeed Nicodemus saw what happened to Jesus on that cross of Calvary, that was it. They'd had it. They were done. They weren't going to stand for it anymore. They weren't going to keep their faith silent anymore. And the same thing is true, I believe, for us as we live in this world today. We live in a world where their attitude towards Jesus really is no different. They misrepresent him. They mock him. They mistreat him. And ultimately, it's going to force every single true disciple of Jesus's to step forward in faith where we get to a point in our hearts where we say enough is enough. I have nothing to be ashamed of in following after Jesus Christ at all whatsoever. It's a point where the world just kind of pushes you into a corner and it pushes and it pushes and it pushes and it's actually a good kind of pushing because what happens is, is it drives something within us. It's sort of a blessing. Maybe we're sometime somewhere down the road or maybe it's already happened to you where a relative or a coworker says something and you go, that does it, that draws the line for me. I will not be silent about this anymore. I'm gonna speak up for my savior and I'm gonna let him know where I stand. And I believe that's what happened to Joseph of Arimathea. That's what prompted him here to come forward and ask Pilate for the body. Well, verse 44, Pilate marveled that he, that is Jesus, was already dead. And he's summoning the centurion. He asked him if he had been dead for some time. And so when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Now, why did Pilate marvel that Jesus was dead? Well, because Jesus died in just six hours. But the centurion was able to verify that Jesus was dead, not only because he was there, not only because as a centurion, no doubt he had probably witnessed hundreds of crucifixions before and he would have known the difference between a man who was dead and a man who was alive, but also we know from John's gospel that they made sure that Jesus was dead. Let me read to you just a small section from John 19. You don't need to turn there. But the religious leaders asked Pilate that they would break the legs of the three of them that were on the cross. Because remember, they'd have to push up from their legs in order to extend their diaphragm so that they could get some air into their lungs. So if they wanted to hasten that along, which they usually didn't, but they did in this case because it was the Passover and they wanted to get onto the feast. So to hasten that process, they would come and break the legs so they couldn't push up for air anymore and the suffocation would happen sooner. So the religious leaders asked Pilate that the soldiers would break their legs. And it tells us, the, verse 32 of John 19 says, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Okay, now, although it was not at all unusual, as I told you last week and the week before, for a victim of crucifixion to die uh, over the course of days, maybe even as much as a week, it is also not at all strange that for Jesus, he would have died in just six hours, considering the beating that he had taken place with him before he ever got to the cross. I think it's interesting, I know it's just the movies, but even doctrinally I think they're correct that in the movies when you see Jesus and the other two on the cross, always the other two are much more clean. They have less damage done to them because most likely they did not go through all of the scourging, all 39 lashes like Jesus did. And so that's why Jesus wouldn't have lasted as long on the cross. And so as we're told from John's Gospel, 
as soon as the soldiers came to break the legs of Jesus, instead, seeing that he was already dead, they did not break his legs as they were instructed to, but they ensured that he was dead with that thrust of a spear, with absolute precision from the Roman Praetorian Guard. They were the Navy SEALs, the special ops of the day. It would have taken them just one attempt to get that right. They'd take that spear and they'd take it up underneath his rib cage and directly to his heart. And we're told immediately that blood and water came out confirming that Jesus was dead. Now the question that you might ask yourself is why would God the Father allow the final indignation of that thrust of the spear going through the body of his already dead son. Why would he allow it? And the simple answer is because of the lies that would begin to be told about Jesus Christ very shortly after his resurrection and all the way up until this day. Most of those have been discredited by now, but even, you know, just 20, 30, 50 years ago, a very popular theory was something called the swoon theory that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but that he fainted from loss of blood and exhaustion, and that he was brought down, and that he was put in the tomb and was later revived. But even well-known skeptics, well-known skeptics, certainly no friends to the gospel of Jesus Christ or Christianity have pointed out how impossible that theory could possibly be, how a half-dead weak and very ill crawling about Jesus that required medical treatment and bandaging and all this kind of thing could have convinced his disciples that he had overcome death and the grave to the point where they would have gone from being totally afraid and a bunch of chickens here in our story right now to who they were in the book of Acts. How do you explain the boldness of the disciples in the book of Acts? Listen, there are people in the world today that die for a lie. It's true, they do. But nobody dies for a known lie. And if Jesus had barely just survived and they had pulled him out of the grave and they had nursed him to health over the course of months, there's no way they would have died thinking that he had overcome death and the grave. It's not possible, and even skeptics have pointed that out, not Christians. It's remarkable to me that the Roman soldiers did not do what they were commanded to do, break his legs, and they did do what they were not commanded to do, which is to thrust the spear into him. Although in actuality, it's not that remarkable when you consider that both of those things perfectly fulfill prophecy once again. That Zechariah 12 said that he would be pierced with a spear. And Psalm 22 and Psalm 34 and others, as we said, prophesied that not a bone would be broken in his body. Even more, I think, appropriate and awesome to consider is that this also fulfills a long-time foreshadow and a typology of Christ dating all the way back to the law of Moses. For you see, when they instituted the sacrificial system, a lamb could not be offered up for a sacrifice that had a blemish, specifically a broken bone. A lamb that had a broken bone in any part of its body would be disqualified as being a lamb that could operate as a sacrifice for someone's sins that they would take to the temple. And so up until that very moment, when those guards had come and they took this big mallet, like a 
big sledgehammer to break off the legs of those victims on the cross. And as they smashed the first man's legs and as they smashed the other man's legs up until that moment of time, if they had taken that big sledgehammer and if they had smashed Jesus' legs, then that would have mean that he could not have fulfilled the prophecies concerning who he was as Messiah. Even though he had fulfilled every other prophecy up until this point in time. Listen, nobody can come on the scene today and just say, I'm the Messiah. They got to be born in Bethlehem. They got to be born of a virgin. They got to have all these things going for them that no one's going to have going for them. But even Jesus, had they broken his legs on that cross because it was prophesied that his legs would not be broken, that not a bone in his body would be broken, had they broken his legs on that cross, then Joseph of Arimathea could have got up, walked away from the cross, and joined in on the feast because he would not have been the Messiah. Such a wonderful thing to be able to study the scriptures this morning and realize that God, to a T, He dotted the I's, He dialed everything in so that there's no way you could leave here this morning anything but convinced. And Joseph was, and so he continued here, verse 36 it says, Then he brought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen. And that is not an insignificant detail either. Because you remember from John's gospel that when Peter and John finally come on the scene and go into the tomb, the grave clothes, this fine linen, was left there, neatly folded in the corner. <laughs> Who steals a, 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 anything out of a grave? What grave robber comes and takes the time to unfold the fine linen around the man before they steal him out of the tomb? Who would do that? let alone choose to run around after they had stolen the body with a naked body as opposed to a clothed body. That's a little bit more of an alarm going off as opposed to taking a clothed body out. This is not an insignificant detail. If there was anything of value that a grave robber would have been looking for, as some have said that the body was stolen, it would have been that fine linen, but the fine linen was left there. They unwrapped the body. <laughs> no grave robber would have done that. The disciples, if they had stolen the body, wouldn't have taken the time. To do that. And he, this is Joseph, still verse 46, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, chiseled. His own tomb. He had hired men to chisel a tomb out of rock. Very expensive and a time-consuming process. And then rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. And that detail there is very critical because these are the very same women that are going to arrive on Sunday at the tomb to f uh, finish, you know, preparing the body for burial. The ones that are going to run into the angel on that Sunday morning. And some skeptics that will try and discredit the resurrection by claiming the empty tomb was empty, not because Jesus rose from the dead, but because the women went to the wrong tomb have just missed what Mark wrote for us here in the gospel, that these women, quote, observed, they took special note of where the location of the tomb was. They knew the directions to the tomb, these women did. I suppose if men were in charge of understanding the directions to the tomb, it would have been a little different issue. I'm just teasing. But these women made special note of the fact that Obviously, this is where it was. Not to mention Joseph of Arimathea. Is he going to forget where his tomb was? It would have cost him a lot of money to have that tomb chiseled out of rock for his family. 
So he wouldn't have forgot. And then to add on top of that, we know that Pilate, in Matthew's gospel, uh, actually uh, made sure that some guards would be, Roman guards, probably a, a squad, maybe like 16 soldiers, would seal and guard that tomb from anybody coming so that no one could steal the body at all whatsoever. You know, it's interesting to consider, or just something to take with you this morning, whenever you, if you ever run into someone who's a skeptic to the resurrection, just, here's one place to start with it, okay? Because the Romans had no interest in a resurrected Jesus Christ. The Jewish religious leaders who were able to turn the nation against Jesus there during the Passover had no interest in a resurrected Jesus Christ. If they wanted to squash the rumors of the resurrection, they only had to do one thing and one thing alone. Produce the body. Just produce the body. Show us the body and we will believe you that Jesus did not resurrect. The problem is they did not have the body. So they never produced the body because they did not have the body. That's why the guards went to the religious leaders, and we know from another gospel that the religious leaders paid the guards to tell people that the disciples had stolen the body while they were asleep, which is the dumbest theory I've heard in my life. It's the dumbest theory. If think about it. I don't know who they paid to come up with these ideas. They just bolster the resurrection um, idea even more so. But if the disciples had come to steal the body and the guards were awake, then there's no way they would have let them stole the body. And if they had stole the body while the guards were asleep, how would the guards know that the disciples stole the body? They would have been asleep. And yet this is the best that they come up with in terms of having to deal with this whole issue. Now, I want to make sure, that, as I brought out in the introduction, how important you understand the burial is in this process. Let me reread what I began with this morning, okay? That the gospel is defined by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Some Christians, I think, probably would say, well, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I get that, I understand why those are necessary components of the gospel, but why is the burial a necessary component of the gospel? And the answer is in what we just read there, two times the phrase, according to the scriptures. Because the prophecies concerning the Messiah predicted that he would not only die, and that he would not only resurrect, but also that he would be buried. He would be placed in a grave. Isaiah 53 says, And they made his grave with the wicked, but with, his, with the rich at his death. So what's the big deal, you say? Wouldn't that just go without saying that if you died, that you would be placed in a tomb and you would be given a proper burial? And the answer to that question is absolutely no. No, it would not. Because it was not the Roman custom in that day to have taken someone who was a criminal that was accused of and convicted of a capital crime and to ever give them a proper burial. They would have done is they would have taken the bodies of crucified victims and they would have probably thrown them in a place called the Valley of Hinnom, which was a, a grand garbage heap. And they would have lit that on fire and then birds and other animals would come and eat away at whatever was in that garbage heap over time. Or at best, they would have just put them in a big mass common 
grave, all of those victims together, especially if the victim was someone that was accused of treason as Jesus was by the religious leaders to Pilate. But 700 years before Jesus' death, not only did Isaiah prophesy that Messiah would die, and not only did he prophesy that he would be buried, but he prophesied that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And listen, this is very important that you know this. If Jesus Christ had been thrown in a big garbage heap or some obscure place, it would make the resurrection very difficult to substantiate. But the fact that his body was placed in a tomb that everyone would know in a rich man's tomb in a very prominent social member of the society the fact that it would be placed in that tomb makes the resurrection very easy to substantiate because the tomb you can go there today and it's empty and there's nothing that anybody can do to argue about that now take yourself back to that good friday scene at the cross just as these as jesus dies and they're letting him down from the cross how in the world, think about it, just picture the scene. How in the world, knowing what we know that Isaiah prophesied, how that we know that Isaiah prophesied that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, could it possibly have happened as Jesus was on the cross at that moment in time? None of the disciples had made arrangements for his burial. None of them were rich per se. In fact, none of them, except for John, were even on the scene to tend to his body afterwards anyway. None of them had the social standing in that society at that time where they could have gone to Pilate and even asked Pilate for the body. They couldn't even have gotten anywhere near Pilate. In fact, the last person that Pilate wanted to see at the end of that Good Friday was a Jew of any kind. He was done with Jews that day. He had had his fair share of difficulty all day long and didn't want to deal with this or this Jesus problem anymore. And yet in steps out of nowhere into that prophetic scene two men Joseph of Arimathea and at some point Nicodemus and God is going to use these men to fulfill that promise given to us from Isaiah it's remarkable no way any of the disciples would have been given the body of Jesus from Pilate. No way. He ordered it to be guarded so the disciples couldn't get to the body. No way any of the disciples could have gained an audience with Pilate that day. Only a prominent member of society, such as Joseph of Arimathea, could have gained audience with Pilate on that day. It's amazing. It's utterly like jaw-dropping amazing. Listen, God has resources at his disposal that you know nothing about. Do you understand that? So anytime you come to a situation, you come to a fork in the road, you come to some kind of a difficulty, and you're like, what in the world am I going to do? God has resources at his disposal you know nothing about. There are no limits or boundaries to what God has as a backup plan in terms of what he can do. God is never nervous. He's never pacing back and forth in heaven. He's not on high blood pressure medication or anything of that sort. 
He's calm and composed. He always has a plan. He looks at things and he looks at everything and he realizes that everything, every single one of his promises, he knows he has the resources to make sure that there are a yes and an amen every single time. All the way through to the resurrection as we look at it now. Chapter 16. Now, verse 1, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? Do you understand the mindset of the women here? Now, don't get me wrong, it's not like the disciples, you know, not Judas, but the eleven were there at the tomb with lawn chairs, cooking eggs, waiting for Jesus to arise that morning. <laughs> here we go. He said he's going to rise, so we'll just camp out here for the night. They were hiding. But the plan to anoint his body with spices and the concern in their mind about who's going to roll away, you know, the stone for us to be able to get in tells us that the resurrection was the furthest thing from their minds, right? I mean, that is not what they're thinking about as they arrived there that Sunday morning. But, verse 4, when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And I know you already know this, but let me just point it out once again, just in case you've forgotten or you don't know. Don't ever forget that that stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. That stone was rolled away so that the witnesses could go in. That's why. And it was. It was rolled away. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. I should think so. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. I love he is risen more than he was risen or he has been risen or he has risen or any other way that you could phrase it because it's timeless. He is risen. They said it then, we say it today. He's a risen Savior, never again to die forevermore. It is the greatest truth of all truths in all of human history and we began this morning by saying it is a cause to rejoice Jesus told the women rejoice when they were going back to bring the news to the disciples rejoice and I told you that word means it's a calming it's a peace kind of joy it's a constant kind of joy that the resurrection brings and so I think it's important to think about and consider this morning why the resurrection is that for us, why it stands alone on its own as information that is incomparable to any other kind of information that any human being can receive as a source of joy and to rejoice. You take the average Christian again and you tell them, 
uh, hey, what would be the significance of the death of Jesus upon that cross? And they'll nail that one. They'll say, he paid the price for my sins upon that cross. And you'd be right. But then if an unbeliever or a skeptic were to say, what's the significance of the resurrection then? That answer is not quite as apparent, I think, initially for us. But you see, without the resurrection, the crucifixion essentially becomes irrelevant. And the Apostle Paul admitted as much. He said in that same passage, 1 Corinthians 15, he said, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, then when he said to Talistai upon the cross, it is finished, in reality, it hadn't even begun because he wouldn't have risen and he would have been proven to have not been who he claimed to be. He needed to rise from the dead. So let me give you two quick reasons why. Two quick reasons why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so vital, is so important, that it is something that should be just completely filling our heart. I mean, just totally dominating every ounce of who we are this morning and giving us joy and a calm and a peace that surpasses understanding this morning. Number one, because the resurrection verified Jesus' claims that he was the Son of God and that he was the Messiah and that he had the power to forgive sins. Remember that when Jesus was in his earthly ministry, he claimed equality with the Father. Remember that? He claimed equality with the Father. He used that calling card for God. He said he was the great I am. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, if that was the case, and he was not equal with the Father, and he had claimed equality with the Father, and he had claimed the Father was going to raise him from the dead after the third day, then the Father would have left him in that tomb if he was not God, if he wasn't who he claimed to be, if he wasn't the Messiah. By the Father raising Jesus from the dead, it was his way of substantiating the claims of Jesus Christ, all that he claimed to be. Romans chapter 1 verse 4, speaking of Jesus, said that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. You remember one day, the religious leaders would come to Jesus and they would say, hey, show us a sign. We want a sign. You claim to be all these things, give us a sign. He had already shown them a bunch of signs. In fact, that was the day after he had fed the multitudes. They said, show us a sign. He said, no, a wicked and adulterous nation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given to this generation but the sign of the prophet Jonah. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah came out out of the fish. What was Jesus saying? That he was going to come up out of the grave. He was predicting. He said, you want a sign. Here's going to be the sign, the only sign you'll ever need to know about me as opposed to anyone who has ever walked the face of the planet. Every single religious leader who has ever claimed any kind of followers in this world still does have followers. They are all still dead. Every single one of them, or they're on their way to death. And Jesus Christ is the only one who is risen and is living and will never die again. And it sets him apart. Anybody can make claims. Anybody can make predictions. I make them all the time. I'm wrong all the time. You do too. 
Anybody can make predictions. Religious people have made predictions. People rally behind those predictions, but none of them rose from the dead, let alone predicted they would rise from the dead and then pull it off also. That's what makes him unique in all of human history. And so you can trust his claims, all of his claims, because no one can rise from the dead but Jesus Christ. That's number one. And number two, the reason, and this is probably the one that's most precious to us, the reason why the resurrection is a, a, a cause for joy, for rejoicing, for a, a subtle, just calming uh, feeling that overwhelms our, mere, our very presence this morning in church today is because it, it represented a victory over humanity's greatest enemy. Because if people are honest, they will admit, every person will admit, at least at some point or another, maybe not now, if you've been walking with the Lord for some time, but you will admit at one point or another that you were, that people are afraid to die. And so what they do is essentially just refuse to accept the inevitability of death. They go on as if it doesn't exist. They kind of try to pretend like, um, it's not there. Death isn't there. God isn't there. Ju judgment isn't there. They're not accountable to God, even though instinctively they know deep down that they are. I'll never forget, some of you heard me say this, but I'll never forget years ago I was driving down the road and I was listening to the radio and there was a commercial came on just for a spot that was promoting another radio station, a comedy radio station, and the comedian said something like this. He said, I am an atheist. He said, I do not believe in God. He said, I strongly disbelieve in the, in the existence of God. I just hope he doesn't hold it against me someday. And I remember thinking about that at the time and going, wow, why would he say that? Even in jest. Except that somehow, some way, deep down, he knew that there was a possibility that God might hold him accountable somewhere down the road. People do know the, that, and yet... Romans 1 tells us that in any way, in spite of what has been revealed to them, that they choose to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In other words, they try to block it out. They try to uh, push it down. Just, it's not there. God's not there. Judgment isn't there. My impending death isn't going to happen someday. Let's not talk about this kind of thing. And so as a result, usually there's one of two reactions that people have. Either they try to live as long as they can. They go out and get plastic surgery or they go with, you know, certain weight loss techniques and health and nutrition. And I'm not bagging on health and nutrition. This is not my way of sneaking in the fact that you shouldn't be nutritious just because I'm not or something like that. I'm just saying that's a byproduct of the fact that people obviously are doing everything they can to stave off death. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that that's what they do because they're afraid of death. Medical research, scientific breakthroughs, cryogenic freezing, all these things today, the movies where they, they somehow preserve the brain of someone and put them in a computer or whatever. Some hope somehow that society can be saved outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or it's just the opposite. Some people, they accept the inevitability of death, but they just go, well, we're going to die, so we might as well just live it up. Well, who cares what we eat or how we do things? Or let's just play hard because we're going to die anyway, so we might as well just have fun while it lasts. And either approach may help them intellectually, but it does nothing to address the pink elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. Why is it nobody wants to talk about it? I go on Facebook all the time. I don't know why. 
But I go on Facebook all the time, and I see these pithy, dumb sayings about the here and the now from personal development gurus and so-called you know, better living experts talking about how to make your life better today and how to have a good day today and how to climb the corporate ladder and how to have a good attitude and blah, blah, blah. And you know what? If you don't have the answer for death, then you are not an expert on any kind of living at all whatsoever. And you have nothing for me because you don't have an answer to the biggest problem that humanity faces and it won't matter. Make a case for it. Go ahead. Try it. 2,000 years from now, what would it make any difference at all whatsoever how you lived your life? Go ahead. Make a case. I defy anyone to make a case for me as to how it'll make it. Don't give me some kind of phony humanitarian kind of, well, we're preserving our society for our great-great-grandchildren nonsense. It's not going to matter at all whatsoever how you lived your life if there is no life after this life. Totally irrelevant. And the only one who has an answer for death is the only one I'm going to listen to. And Jesus Christ is the only one who has that answer. In Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John said, when I saw him in that heavenly scene, he said, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And he said, I have the keys of Hades and of death. In other words, by the time that Jesus gets done with the death and the burial and the resurrection, he took control of the two great enemies of mankind, death and hell. It's almost as if he's saying he's so thoroughly conquered death and hell that those are two keys on his keychain now. What's a key? As he said there, a key rep represents authority. If I have a key, I have access to open and get into the room, or I have access to lock it and close that door up as well. And it's almost as if Jesus is communicating to us that because of his resurrection from the dead, he has absolute authority over death and of hell. And that's why the Apostle Paul, again from 1 Corinthians 15, said, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Because just like a bee... When a bee loses its stinger, all it can do is threaten us. And if you know the stinger is gone, it can't even threaten you. And that's why Hebrews 2 reads this way. Inasmuch then, listen, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that just means that we have bodies, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise shared in the same. He took on a body also, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. In other words, the only way that anyone, but the only way that Jesus could conquer the fear of death is by taking on a body and then by dying and then rising from the grave to pave the way so that we could face that fear someday soon as well I just so thank God that he did that for us and by the way I'm not so sure that the death experience itself is even something to be fearful of we have reason precedence to believe in scriptures that it is a natural transition look at Acts 7 the stoning of Stephen 
as he's being stoned before he's dead, he says, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. For the believer in Jesus Christ, death is deliverance to God. That's why the Apostle Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Incredibly, the greatest enemy of humanity in the history of humanity, death now has become the best friend of the Christian because it is our first class ticket to heaven to be with our Savior for all time, forever, never ever to return and to be with him forevermore. It was that classic preacher, Vance Havener, when he was in his 90s, was asked, what's the secret to your health? And he said, it is the hope of death that has been keeping me going all of these years. Because it's only through death that we can truly be in the presence of Almighty God. It's only through death that we can put on incorruption. It's only through death that we can make it to paradise, that we can be in heaven, that we can be in a sinless state. And that's why the Apostle Paul classified death as one of many things that actually are given to us, that belong to us as Christians. He said in 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. He says death belongs to you. Death belongs to the Christian because death is our means of coming to God. How do we know that? Because Jesus Christ went first. He went first and he took away the sting. He took away the fear. Everyone would be subject to the bondage of the fear of death all of their life except Jesus Christ went first and he rose from the dead and nobody else ever did that. I tell you, no one in this world can know peace. No one in this world can know true joy. No one in this world can really be permanently calm until and unless they have an answer for the problem of death and victory over death. No one will rest. And only Jesus Christ has that answer. Only he proved that he was victorious and that he conquered death and the grave. And there is only one proper preparation for death and eternity. And that is to look unto Jesus and to put your trust and your faith in the resurrected Savior sent of God to this world to die in our place, but not just die, but to be buried, and not just be buried, but to rise again and conquer the grave as the conquering king that he is. Hey, if there's anyone in here who has a shadow of a doubt about that, please don't leave here today without pulling aside someone around you and asking them, and even greater evidence than anything I could present before you today, a testimony of a changed life. Every single person in this room, not just the women or Peter and John later on, every single person in here, a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. It is inarguable there's anybody here at all that has any shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, do not leave here today 
without coming forward to speak to one of the people up front or speaking to someone in the seats next to you and ask them everything you want to know. And if they don't know, they'll point you in the direction of someone else. And we will stay here until we have to, to convince you, as long as you have honest questions. Because we want the same for you that we have of ourselves. That rejoicing, that joy, that calmness, that peace that comes from knowing we have a resurrected, a risen and living Savior. And because of that, we too shall rise as well someday. Lord, thank you for this tremendous truth, God. One that is not, no other truth is worthy to be laid alongside in comparison to. Lord, nothing that we rejoice over is worthy to be compared to. We think about all, even of the tragedy, the difficulty, people in here who have lost loved ones, who are facing trials, and even the harshest realities of these life, I'm convinced, do not even compare to the joy that is given to us in believing in the resurrection of your son. And Lord, I pray for anyone, if there's anyone here who's even a little bit unsettled in their heart as to what they believe, that God, you would stir them up and not let them leave here today. Have them come forward afterwards and talk with us, God. I'm so thankful to you as I look out at this room. I know in this room, Lord, I see most people that I know that are changed lives. What we don't even know yet, we just don't even realize how wonderful, really it's an understatement to say rejoice, that we're going to rise someday, that death will not have the final say. You will, as you always have, as you demonstrated through the impossible circumstances, perfectly fulfilled in your word, you will have the final say. And we will rise someday. And Lord, there's nothing better to hear this morning. And there's no greater reason to worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.